Welcome. We trust you will be encouraged by this message from Bonnie Chavda by Chavda Ministries International. Real love, real people, real power. Good morning, saints. It's good to be in the house of the Lord together. Please remain standing for the word. We're going to declare together today Psalm 144. Praise the Lord. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to read directly from your own version of Scripture. We will not do a read response. We'll just say it all together in one great harmony of voices. Are you ready? Praise the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. My loving kindness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues the peoples under me. What is man that you take knowledge of him or the son of man that you are mindful of him? Man is like a breath and his days are like a passing shadow. Bow down your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains and they shall smoke. Flash forth lightning and scatter them. Shoot out your arrows and destroy them. Stretch out your hand from above. Rescue me and deliver me out of great waters from the hands of foreigners whose mouths speak lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. The one who gives salvation to kings, who delivers David, his servant, from the deadly sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth. That our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. That our barns may be full, supplying all kinds of produce. That our sheep may bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. That our oxen may be well laden. That there be no breaking in or going out. That there be no outcry in our streets. Happy are the people who are in such a state. Happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Can you say amen? Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. In the parable of the Lord, the wise man built his house on a rock. And when the storms came, the house stood firm. The old map makers who drew the continents and waters, according to the reports of the mariners and the explorers of their day, wrote on the undiscovered edges of the maps, there are dragons beyond this point. The Andrea Gale, in October 1991, a 72-foot commercial shipping, uh, fishing vessel, sailed from her home in the port of Gloucester, Maine, Massachusetts where she would offload her catch and reload food and stores for her next run. And on October 28th, the Andrea Gale was on day 40 of an extended commercial sword fishing trip when three powerful storms converged on the Northeast. The data buoys measured waves as high as 100 feet. 
and the boat was hit with winds measuring 92 miles per hour. The night before the storm, Andrea Gale's captain, Billy Tyne, radioed the area fishermen. She's coming on, boys, and she's coming on strong, he said. Her last reported position was 180 miles northeast of Sable Island, near the edge of the continental shelf off the coast of Nova Scotia. The Andrea Gale's six-man crew, Tyne, David Sullivan, Bobby Shatford, Alfred Pierre, Dale Murphy, and Michael Morin, all young men in their 20s and 30s, didn't make it home. One local fisherman said, whatever happened, happened quick. The Andrea Gale's emergency beacon washed ashore that November, but the bo boat was never found. The crew left behind five children among them, and the entire small town mourned their loss. Psalm 107 says, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens and go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. We're reminded of the story of the apostles as well. In the storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is there asleep in the hold of the ship. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end, then, say then, they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still, and they are glad because they are quiet, and he guides them to their desired haven. Today, America, like the Andrea Gale, is a ship first among nations whose hull is still laden with liberty and promise and opportunity and blessings and an inheritance for future generations. But a storm has descended upon her, a perfect storm of a devastating man-made pandemic a derelict and incompetent administration, a corrupt, impotent Congress, a diabolical bureaucratic deep state, inflation and economic distress at a 40-year high, an open border, fentanyl crisis, food shortage, fuel disaster, educational apostasy, a so-called Department of Justice and FBI that brazenly transgress our sacred rights and threaten the sovereignty of American citizens day by day, a bloated and insidious industrial military complex, a corrupt corporate culture, a health system that panders to big pharma and ignores science, a political oligarchy of lifetime politicians and globalists, but most ominous of all, a general famine of virtue and the Christian faith in our society. 
In a recent poll of 2,318 to 34-year-old Gen Z respondents, 54% of adults said they have a negative view of capitalism. 41% of the youths in that poll said they have a positive view of socialism. For a long, slow burn, the Communist Marxist Manifesto, its goal, its stated theory is to abolish the existing system and culture and replace it with one they control. Understanding a power so great as America can only be subjected to tyranny, not from without, from within. From antichrist, racist activism like Black Lives Matter and the 1619 Project to the radical agendas of gender identity, climate change, woke religions, our nation is awash in a torrent spewed from the dragon's mouth, the apostle saw in his Revelation chapter 12 and verse 15. I looked and behold, the serpent spewed out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This nation is on a precipice no less than the Andrea Gale near the continental shelf in that October storm. There are dragons beyond this point. But the future is in our hands. We've been here before. The circumstance and conditions of our founders' generation, the things they faced were no less ominous. Serious and fragile economic disaster loomed. Drought, taxation, a top-heavy system of entitled political overlords, a conscience-searing problem of slavery, major military threats from within and without, widespread illiteracy, deep factions within the various Christian denominations, and a general spiritual ignorance and malaise, not to mention a tyrant ruling from afar. But for the help of heaven, the outlook was impossible. And in that day, a 39-year-old fiddle-playing backcountry farmer turned lawyer stood up among peers, friends, and enemies in St. John's Church, influenced, as we said earlier, by dissenter pastor Reverend Samuel Davies from the Polgreen Church amidst the smoldering, smoldering fires of the Great Awakening. As a youth, Patrick Henry caught the vision of the will of a righteous God amidst the destiny of a nation. And David's powerful speaking style and message of the gospel had taken hold in young Henry and would compel him to the fore in a kairos moment for America.
And it was in that climate and circumstance that God showed his hand. Like the litany of heroes of faith in our chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, from our national origin, we have many who have gone before us right down to our very day, and they are witness and warrior, and their call comes to each of us as it came to Patrick Henry in that day. And in his famous speech, mostly the only thing he's known for in general, but it was, frankly, perhaps the least significant thing that he did or said. In St. John's Church pulpit, he rose to say, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will raise up friends to fight our battles with us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. He is a too much unsung founding father of our young nation. And Pastor Mahesh quoted earlier what he said about this nation's founding. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often. This great nation was founded not by religionists. And friends, in those days, in the same way that liberty, the word liberty, as we may see later in the court's decision, quoting Lincoln, is defined by many in many different ways. In that day and age, the word religion referred not to any other thing but Christianity. So when we read it in our histories and our founding documents, the struggle then had at its heart in the destiny of this nation, the Christian faith, alive and burning in the midst of the fires of the Great Awakening in that hour. The Bible was a general textbook in homes if people were taught to read Generally, it began with the Bible, with the scriptures. And whether they had an active, born-again, awakened personal faith or not, their language, their ideas were all rife with the passages, the images from scripture, from the prophets, and from the New Testament. And these were the things that salted their minds, their imagination, their will, their determinations, and the documents, the foundations that they gave us. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians. Not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. The wise men 
builds his house on a rock. Henry's grandson biographer, William Wirt, describes the peculiar characteristic of a young Patrick that became the hallmark of his power to ignite the formation of a nation. He was said to have a Shakespearean-like propensity to observe and comment upon the human character, often reflecting out of his own heart and life. He struggled from day one with the hypocrisy of slavery and the question of how to answer the fragile young nation's economic well-being and the problem of having it so dependent on persons that were owned by other persons. He was a friend to the abolitionist Quakers and encouraged and spoke for them. He had a consummate knowledge of the human heart and it enabled him to touch the springs of passion, writes Wirt, with a master hand and control the resolutions and decisions of his hearers with a power that was almost more than mortal. In his very first public case, Henry transformed before the court. He awkwardly stood up, this young man of 23 from the backwoods in rough clothing before these astute and learned clergymen. And there, his own father, a vestryman of the Anglican Church as the uh, magistrate judge that day in the court. And as Henry, surely anointed as the psalmist with fresh oil, and his horn was raised up in front of those learned and powerful men, Henry's own father went to tears. He was arguing for the Parsons, clause, Parsons cause. He called the king a tyrant. That took some courage. Shouts of treason came from the bench when he said it. He said the king had for forfeited all right to his subjects' obedience because of the rule that was being argued, which had to do with salary for certain clergymen. And those clergymen were exhorting the people in a moment of economic difficulty and drought. And Henry was on their side. He said the king had forfeited all right to his subjects' obedience. And when the jury readily returned the verdict in favor of Henry's clients, the young lawyer was hailed with shouts from the onlookers in the crowd that had pressed in around the courthouse outside, and they carried him out on their shoulders into the streets for a great party and hallelujah. But those were some of the beginning movements and manifestations and even words. This young man shot forth under the anointing of God and it ignited what was already smoldering in his countrymen and in the simple folk. 
He was recognized and inscribed by his own peers, including a contrary and sometimes jealous Thomas Jefferson, who was at that time struggling with his own conviction of faith and was determining that perhaps Jesus was not actually deity, but his teachings were good. The Lord confronted Peter in front of the gates of hell, and he said, Don't tell me who men say I am, Peter. Who do you say that I am? And in that confrontation, Jesus said, what you have recognizing that I am the Christ, that's a gift from the Father. Steward it well. A contrary and jealous Jefferson and Federalist opponent Madison, they hailed Henry as America's first and foremost patriot and the man who sparked the revolution and the actual fight for independence. Henry's vision of the American Republic was grounded in virtue, in the Christian faith, and in a strong and responsive local government. States' rights, where the local people, with their own local representatives, spoke for them on important matters and decided on the law and things like taxation. It's what made Henry be called an apostate by those same men, Jefferson specifically, when he later opposed the ratification of the Constitution because he said the language of it, and he looked into the future as he did many times, and he prophesied that unless certain things were done at the forming, that future generations would become ruled over by corrupted and greedy tyrants using some of those same foundations. And so Henry always opposed the ratification And when it did pass, then he began to rally a cry for the amendments, the bills of rights, in order to specify things that would safeguard Americans individually and nationally as a whole for future generations. This great man. His priorities were were the things that always anchored his political principles. He was the very first one to publicly put forth the specific terms, Declaration of Our Independence. And many around him looked askance when he had the courage and temerity to say that. His five uh, resolutions against the Stamp Act, which was essentially an unjust tax, a sneaky way that the king had determined to squeeze a little money out of every single American for every legal document, marriage, license, letter, anything that was done requiring paper in order to do your business had to be stamped with a particular stamp for which they had to pay. And it was the king's way of trying to refill Britain's empty coffers from their seven-year war with the French and Spanish. And he put it on the backs 
of the Americans in the colonies. And Henry stood up against him and led the rallying cry. And he presented five resolutions, grounding them originally in the ideas of liberty and the rights of citizens under the British common law. But he went on to be more radical than that. And though in that particular instance, his resolutions didn't pass, his words and vision took hold. And there is where the battle turned. Dorothea, his second wife, and he was a devoted and doting, loving husband and father by all who knew him, including his family members, and he would often choose to leave the calls of the public demand, the public office. He was reelected as Virginia governor five or six times. Washington implored him several times to come into Washington's administration after it was for, uh, formed, and he refused every time, choosing rather to be at home when possible with his family or to remain identified with the common man of his day around him. Dorothea, his second wife, because Henry's first wife, Sarah, had died after the birth of their sixth child as a young woman who had descended into deep depression. And yet he cared for her and kept her at home. He built a special house for her and had servants there to wait on her. She descended into serious mental illness, but he refused to allow her to be put away in the snake pits that were the institutions for the mentally ill in that day and kept her at home under care and love instead. So Sarah had passed away several years, or two years at least, before. Then Henry and a widow, Dorothea Bainbridge, married. But Dorothea recalled that when Henry died, just one month after his 63rd birthday, on June 6th in 1799, he had served the nation for nearly four decades. And he never wavered in his vision or his message or compromised his faith or the fire that was in him for the destiny of this nation and what it meant for future posterity, what it meant for us. She recalled that when he died, which he died of an intestinal blockage, and his friend, a physician who waited on him, in that day, they had no option of surgery or understanding of the things in the same way we do. And Henry's death was imminent from this rupture in his intestines. And the remedy, the prescription in that day, according to their knowledge, was to take a vial of mercury, which they believed that would wait the rupture and either put it back into place or kill the patient. And Dorothea wrote that he met death with firmness and in full confidence that through the merits of a bleeding savior, his sins would be pardoned. And 
it was perhaps the words of an Isaac Watts song that would have been sung in Davy's Pole Green Church at the time of taking communion, a song called A Bleeding Savior, a song that became one of the anthems of the Great Awakening. What mighty man or lovely God comes marching downward through the skies, arrayed in garments, rolled in blood with joy and pity in his eyes? The Lord, the Savior, yes, tis he. I know him by the smiles he wears. Dear glorious man that died for me, drenched deep in agonies and tears. Lo, he reveals his shining breast. I own those wounds and I adore. Lo, he prepares a royal feast sweet fruit of those sharp pangs he bore. Whence flow these favors so divine? Lord, why so lavish of thy blood? Why for such earthly souls as mine, this heavenly wine, this sacred food? T'was his own love that made him bleed, that nailed him to the cursed tree. T'was his own love that tables spread for such unworthy worms as we. And on more than one occasion, Patrick when hailed or castigated by friend or foe, he would refer again to the words from this psalm, and he, said, he would say, I am an unworthy worm, but servant of the King of glory. Then let us taste the Savior's love. Come, faith, and feed upon the Lord. With glad consent, our lips shall move and sweet hosannas crown the board. As George Cabell attended him and Henry held the vial of mercury, he drew his silk, ca silk cap down over his eyes and prayed briefly for his friends, his family, his country, and himself. And he swallowed the medicine and then spoke quietly for a while to his family testifying again to the physician whose own faith was in turmoil of the assurance of the bleeding Savior and of his salvation. And finally, he breathed very softly for some moments and died. He left two messages for posterity, testaments both to his private religious faith and his hopes for America's future. His handwritten will provided his widow and 17 children with legacies sufficient to support them in comfort and independence. This is all the inheritance I can give to my dear family, the note said. The religion of Christ can give them one which will make them rich indeed. Next to his will, Henry had left a sealed envelope addressed to his ex, uh, executors, and it contained a single sheet of paper. One side bore the text of his 1765 resolutions against the Stamp Act, which men and women of his day acknowledged were the starting point of the American Revolution. The other side offered a message to his fellow citizens that Henry knew would be read only after his death. It began with a short commentary about the past, his Stamp Act resolutions, and he said they had spread an alarm throughout America with astonishing quickness. 
They had successfully united the 13 colonies behind the great point of resistance to the British taxation and brought on the war which finally separated the two countries and gave independence to ours. Jefferson, recalling the resolutions, said these resolutions in his manner of supporting them, by them Mr. Henry took the lead out of the hands who had therefore guided the proceedings of the house and directed us. He was a prophet, the first and boldest of patriots, and truly unmatched among our founders. And for those of us who know the evidence and workings of the Holy Spirit, it's very apparent that was the anointing that poured down upon Henry and equipped him with a skill and authority to speak and spark the birth and progress of a fledging, fledgling nation. Patrick Henry still calls to us. We have from 250 years of forerunners, inspiration, example, and the assurance of the same assistance from on high that they trusted in and saw come to their aid. We have but to ask and to arise. So let us ask. Let us each arise to the aid of heaven in this battle before us. We are certain this ship and its cargo shall not be lost, but shall come to its desired haven. And it remains to that end that the Declaration, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights of these United States can remain the rock and foundation for our house of society to build upon only as long as that society and majority holds that creation's God and not courts or culture affected by men's caprice endows upon that society and individuals in particular certain inalienable rights. Our lives, our freedoms, and the hope and privilege of personal ownership of property, for never in no wise did the authors of our founding documents ever intend those words, pursuit of happiness, to mean every man doing what is right in his or her own eyes, desires, or deceits. But our lives, our freedoms, and the hope and privilege of the pursuit of happiness are only as sound as the souls of the heirs to whom these treasures have been bestowed. And there is nothing new under the sun. The very ominous early departure of man from his destiny when the first family took in hand their God-inbreathed power of rational intellect and the authority of personal choice and wielded it to suit their urge in spite of and against his afore counsel, thou shalt not spoken by the author in the garden. It is by sovereign design that you, American Christian, and I have been ordained by our creator to live and breathe and have our being in this hour in this nation. 
But he who has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth has determined our pre-appointed times and the boundaries of our dwelling that men might seek and find the Lord. For he is not far from each one of us. Job, the most ancient of the holy writ, declares, You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. The psalmist said, for you formed my inward parts and knitted me together in my mother's womb. And Ecclesiastes, authored by the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Solomon, ascribed for thousands of years by people of all backgrounds as the wisest man in the world, declares, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. The Bible settles for us questions of male, female, origin, good, evil, life, and death. And for Christians, there can be no debate and no compromise. And in this hour, we are called to courage and clarity. In 2022, it is grotesque and base and unacceptable that among the ill winds of the storm descending on this nation, a main point of debate and controversy in these United States and picked up as a rallying cry, an obscene rallying cry in our city centers among those same 18 to 34-year-olds of that survey I mentioned is the legality and not the morality of abortion a medical procedure of evacuating the womb of a pregnant woman in order to eviscerate her defenseless child at any stage post-conception? This is a conversation? It's a reason for carrying banners and marching in collegiate form in the, cities of our, in the, in the streets of our cities? And we allow it? Or we sit silent? Or we are cowed by the threats of a feckless enemy, inbreathed by ignorance and darkness and the very spirit of the beast of John's revelation. And in that point, it is a moment of necessity. The Dobbs decision is a clarion trumpet call, a plumb line that has been dropped for every American Christian. And for instruction in righteousness, every Christian should read for themselves the entire decision of the court. And you may learn in one measure the wisdom of those early documents that we have taken for granted, but are the only material rock on which the house of our society stands. That recent decision, it's called the Dobbs decision because the case is officially Dobbs versus the Jackson Women's Health Organization. It's truly a landmark decision. The court held that the Constitution of the United States does not confer a right to abortion and thereby overruled the decisions of both 
Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And I thought that we would read here today in a few words only a couple of excerpts, clear excerpts about that decision to inspire and spur you as one of many things that we face today as Christians, that you be not idle, nor uninformed, nor ill-equipped. The court rightly and thoughtfully decided that, quote, not only was there no support for such a constitutional right until shortly before Roe, but abortion had long been a crime in every single state. At common law, abortion was criminal in at least some stages of pregnancy and was regarded as unlawful and could have very serious consequences at all stages. American law followed the common law until a wave of statutory restrictions in the 1800s expanded criminal liability for abortions. By the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, three-quarters of the states had made abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy, and the remaining states would soon follow. Roe either ignored or misstated this history, and Casey declined to reconsider Roe's faulty historical analysis. It is therefore important, the judges said, to set the record straight. Those statutes, so-called constitutional rights, were not constitutional at all and, in fact, were built on sand. And finally, a court decided rightly. The justices continued, the due process clause does not confer a right, for instance, to assisted suicide. The court surveyed more than 700 years of Anglo-American common law tradition and made clear that a fundamental right must be, quote, objectively and deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. And historical inquiries of this nation are essential whenever we are asked to recognize a new component of the liberty, in quotes, protected by the due process clause because the term liberty alone provides little guidance. It is a capacious term, and as Lincoln once said, we all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. The Mississippi legislator made a series of factual findings. Again, this is directly from the decision. It began by noting, at the time of enactment, only six counties besides the United States permitted non-therapeutic or elective abortion on demand after the 20th week of gestation. The legislature then found that at five or six weeks gestational age, the unborn human being's heart begins beating. At eight weeks, the unborn human being begins to move about in the womb. At nine weeks, all basic physiological functions are present. At 10 weeks, vital organs begin to function. Hair, fingernails, toenails begin to form. At 11 weeks, the unborn human being's diaphragm 
develops and he or she may move about freely in the womb. And at 12 weeks, the unborn human being, the words of the law, has taken on human form in all relevant respects. And it found that most abortions after 15 weeks employ dilation and evacuation procedures which involve the use of surgical instruments to crush and tear the unborn child. And it concluded that the intentional commitment of such acts for non-therapeutic or elective reasons is a barbaric practice. Dangerous for the maternal patient and demeaning to the medical profession. Amen. Alas, Isaiah said, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord and provoked to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away backward. Why would you be stricken again? Will you revolt more and more? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. History repeats itself. But there is a great company. There are more that are with us than there are against us. John said, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels that were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Can you say, Amen? Writing in his day, as the dark cloud of fascism and antichrist rolled over Europe, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, there is no way to peace along the way of safety. For peace must be dared. It is itself the great venture and can never be safe. Peace is the opposite of security. To, to demand guarantees is to want to protect oneself. Peace means giving oneself completely to God's commandment, wanting no security, but in faith and obedience, laying the destiny of the nations in the hand of Almighty God. Not trying to direct it for selfish purposes, for battles are not won with weapons, but with God. And they are one when the way leads to the cross. When David's called out the king, 
for speaking in the midst of his message and said, a lion roars in the forest and the beasts are quiet. But when the king of heaven speaks, princes of earth are silent. I am sure that heaven is speaking today. I am sure that we are on heaven's side. I am sure that heaven is on our side. And so the church, if we are to retain the blessings of liberty and prosperity unique to the American experiment of government for a national society of people afforded inalienable God-given rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. If we are to pass these on to a posterity, we must awaken as wise and trim our wicks and fill our lamps with the same oil that anointed and ignited the fathers of our faith and the founders of our nation. We must have a fresh encounter with the living God and recognize as Peter and Saul and even the demons of hell recognized Jesus as Lord and Christ, the immortal, eternal Son of God and King of Heaven. Arise and shine. Isaiah calls to us still. And so, while in times past we may have been taken in by users, losers, and abusers of this great inheritance, there is still an angel that rides in the whirlwind and directs this storm. As for me, in the certain conviction of my Savior, I shall not be silent before this storm, for liberty is a more desirable treasure than life in chains and shame. And surely as the angel spoke to Paul in that ship, in that storm on the sea, Paul in chains in the ship's hold and said, do not fear, Paul. While we are in this ship, America shall not fail. we shall come to our desired haven and find that rest for our souls. Will you stand? The inbreathed scripture, the holy word of God, just as that lump of clay formed in the hands of our author, was then inbreathed, animated by God's own breath. Today, Lord, come again and enliven and awaken these lumps of clay that we may not only rise and open our eyes, but we might have breath of word and wisdom, of power and authority, that our horn, like David's, might be anointed afresh and raised up in the midst of friend and family 
and nation and foe. And that we might find ourselves as young Henry in a Kairos moment, in a commission and call and ordination of a just God who holds the destinies of nations in his hands and might recognize that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And therefore, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that would so easily entangle us and run with perseverance the race that we might gain the prize and wear the crown. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, our victorious champion, we see you even now as you stand to your feet in the midst of your throne and put forth the nail-marked hands, the sword from your mouth, the fire in your eyes, a new crown resting on that embattled brow. Stretch forth your scepter, we pray, that you might touch us with your authority and drip upon us fresh oil today. We pray, come Holy Spirit, renew reconstitute, recreate, and re-inhabit these vessels in this hour, in this nation. That we, Lord, as fishermen of men, might hear your word from the heavenly shore, calling out to us in this hour, to let down our nets, to cast them, though we may have been laboring and toiling all night already. And day is dawning to cast our nets on the other side at your word and let them down for a great harvest. That it would not be this storm but rather a ship so laden with harvest that creaking under the weight of this treasure and souls added to your book we might move in rejoicing and assurance of hope to our desired haven anchored within your courts. Jesus, we know you hear us. Let's make this our prayer. Crying out for mercy. Jesus, 
come and heal us. Come release your glory. Jesus, we know you hear us. Crying out for mercy. Come and heal Jesus. Come and heal us. We humble ourselves. Shout it out, shout it louder. God bless America. As Let your grace on heaven. us. Hear the sound, hear the sound. There's a prayer to send like incense, like lightning coming down. Of our founders, our forefathers, hear of faith and of this nation. We open our ears.
Exhale that fear today. Exhale that uncertainty today. For surely an angel is in the whirlwind. Surely Jesus has said, do not be afraid. I will not leave you orphans, but I will come to you. And he has come. So in breathe today, saints. In breathe afresh the revelation and reality that Christ in you is the certain hope of glory. We hope you enjoyed this message. To order more great resources by Bonnie Chavda, visit us at chavdaministries.org. For a full catalog of our products, you can call us at 1-800-730-6264. God bless you.